He describes himself as a technical artist. He has been within the world of 3D modeling and lighting for over two decades now. He said, inspired by movies like Shrek, which made me feel really old. I was like, oh shit, Shrek's 20 years old. Okay, so today on the Metaverse show, we've got somebody that describes himself as a technical artist, Scotty Fox. Welcome, Scotty. Hey, how you doing? So Scotty is one of those people that I have been stalking on Twitter. I kind of came across him doing some really cool shit that I could vaguely understand that seemed at least adjacent to everything that we talk about on the show, very much looking or exploring the convergence of technologies in the context of, I guess, VR, AR, and AI. And to be quite frank, I just thought I'd love to know how the hell he's doing that and to hear his his thoughts about its implications. And so rather than just have a phone call, I thought I'll share that with the world. So here we are. Here's Scotty. By way of introduction, I don't know Scotty very well. So I'm shooting a little bit blind here. But what I do know is, as I said, he describes himself as a technical artist. We had a little bit of a preamble offline. He has been within the world of 3D modeling and lighting for over two decades now. He said inspired by movies like Shrek, which made me feel really old. I was like, oh shit. Shrek's 20 years old, but there we are. I am old. Maybe Scotty's old too. I don't know. I'm not, I won't ask his age. A long time playing around with technologies, I guess that could be used for both making a movie or a game. And again, that's pretty convergent in a space. And I know that you, you've kind of thrown in a few buzzwords into the work that you do. And one of which is stable diffusion. And so I definitely want to kind of drill down into that, but maybe before we go into all that, Scotty, tell us a little bit about you beyond being inspired by Shrek. I'm kind of a hobbyist by nature. I've always had this penchant for taking apart the remote control or seeing if you can assemble something you know, together. And I looked adjacently in a lot of other communities, what are they doing with software? You know, Five years ago, maybe current. And they're taking something that exists repurposing it, combining it with another piece of software and coming up with innovation. They're saying, wow, look at this. It's nothing spectacular. They're not inventing fire from scratch, but they're blending fire in a new way to make that spectacle. I've always, like yourself, have been intrigued by wild things and seeing stuff and how it might bloom. But I usually dial it back and start asking, well, how did they do it? It had to be somebody sitting down at a computer at one point or with a an easel and an art brush, putting something together. There's going to be some root of it. And that's what I'm obsessed with. I learn, I read, I go through papers, I do more research, and I add that to kind of my toolkit. So I'm not stuck with just a paintbrush and a canvas. Now I can start coloring outside the lines. And like you said, over the last couple of decades, that's what's inspired me to land right here. Uh, now that AI is kind of almost like a commonplace buzzword, I wanted to see what they're doing and what's going on there. And I added that to my toolkit. So it, it develops and evolves more and more. Yeah. And I guess, look, it must be a really cool time to be somebody like you, right? Because on the one hand, I mean, I can see some guitars in the background there. So you're clearly a creative, like generally lots of different mediums lots of different tools. At the same time, you're a technologist. So you're, a, I don't know the extent that you'd say you're a coder or a developer, but you're certainly as a, at least know how to kind of play around with technologies and, and, and kind of push the boundaries. And yet, you know, we're at this point now where we're seeing things like open AI and, and everything that's going on with G, GPT chat, 
We're seeing mid-journey. We're seeing, I guess, really the first time everybody, it's obvious to everybody that AI is going to dramatically change the world that we're in. I guess the most visually appealing way to bring that to life is through the creative application but of course we know it's going to go well beyond that is that how do you how do you look at this this moment does it feel does it feel like it's been fairly progressive and iterative to get here or does it does it feel like we're in this kind of real exponential moment like most people who are first exposed to ai what that means it was a viral ad that I believe I saw on Facebook that was, this person doesn't exist. And I said, well, what, what does that mean? And apparently they used AI to generate a person that has never existed in history. And that intrigued me to see what's going on. And as I built that, I wanted to know more. And I realized that there isn't more. Nobody has invented this yet. They haven't dabbled or explored in it. So you won't see tutorials. You won't see how-tos or click the button and download. So just recently, things have started to become open source. And a lot of the goals of these different companies are to get it into the hands of the many. The use cases are absolutely wild. But I learned more about myself in the last couple of months, just displaying some of my work about what others are doing. And I might not be the first person to work on this in the world, but I am the first person to display it because I'm not behind a company. I'm not behind a you know an NDA where they can't release some of the progress that they're working as the behemoth tech companies are trying to produce right now. So therefore, I've been able to connect with the community and see what other people are working on. They've literally asked me one-on-one -on -one questions uh, akin to this interview right here. And through that, I've learned, wow, the rest of the world is working on something or they haven't thought to work on it. And that's kind of what inspires me to start moving forward. And you're absolutely right. Things are exponentially moving forward. A paper that is published today will be obsolete by Friday. There'll be a new research and publication that will then replace it as more and more people join the community to start testing things out. And of course, learning about themselves and the role of AI. And I've heard a lot of publications say in the next five to 10 years, AI will be in everybody's lives whether they're using a phone or the different reaches of the earth where there's resources being brought to them and calculated per whatever their population might have for the needs of those resources will then be AI driven as well. So it's actually happening and we are at the birthplace of it. So there's lots of questions that come off the back of that and maybe we'll kind of circle back to them, but maybe let's just bring it to life because at the moment it's like slightly esoteric, you know, we're, we're talking about this, exponential growth of AI. We're talking about how it converges with AR or VR. But one of the things that drew me to you was that you so brilliantly bring it to life visually. Maybe we can maybe we can have a look. You can kind of show us and then talk us through what it takes to make that happen. Sure. And the kind of range of application. So I mean as you can see the room and the background that I'm in right now, it's part of diffused imagery. What that basically means is AI was trained on a data set. It's a collection of a whole bunch of different terms, pieces of data, imagery, and that can be applied to any type of output. For me to clarify a little bit, usually people are pressing a button. They want to see an image of an apple. The apple gets displayed on screen. That's just a basic search engine. There's nothing special about that. You can do that at Google and just get an apple. However, when you're tapping into a data set, 
that apple can change based on the definition of that apple. You can then create things that might not exist in real life. For instance, I want a purple or yellow apple with spots. So then you can start tapping into the creativeness of it as you dive into it. In terms of what I've done, I have a lot of background in like VR and experience, immersive experiences rather, where you could either look around or be in a space where it's a, you know, a viewport. But that takes a lot of processing power to be able to produce something on that scale that quickly. So I started coming up with different methods. How can you make it more bite-sized, a little bit more digestible so it doesn't have to be run on a cloud GPU with the most expensive hardware and components out there? I built my entire set on consumer mid-grade hardware just on a gaming GPU that is accessible to most people or at least into gaming or have a desktop. Right now, if you go onto any PC builder or configurator, if you try to PC, it will run the program that I'm writing because that's what the standard has been. That standard didn't exist years ago. So what does it take to do what I'm doing? A little clever trickery about how to present it. But we as humans forget that we don't see a 360 degree environment when we're immersed in it. We just see a narrow viewpoint of spectacle, things that grab our attention. So there might be the man behind the curtain, and that's what my program is doing. But what we're viewing is the actual spectacle, the show of it all. So I started to showcase little pieces of my work or what it can be applied for, just for the, the hobbyist point, maybe to inspire others to say, hey, it can be done if you plug this into that, and you'll yield some kind of result. And that's grabbed the attention of a lot of different companies and outlets that I wouldn't even have thought of that are completely outside my field of work. And so it's kind of, once again, that exponential is starting to also evolve in me as I'm developing and polishing. There's people that ask me for wait lists or a beta, or can they try this out at home? And, and this was only two months ago that I put this all together. Yeah. And I saw even Robert Scoble commented in very recently, I was just getting through the tweet threads before I went in there. Robert Scoble obviously had been very involved in kind of the VRAR community for, for some time. And so what we're looking at now, you had it in the background, that was you're at your desktop, it's a fixed camera, but you do a lot of things where you're moving around, right? So you're either moving around with your mobile and you're wandering around a space and I, I think you've also shown that it's possible within a VR headset as well, right? So you're you're walking around and the environment is, is it responding to you in some way? Or is, it, is there a feedback loop as you as a viewer? Or? In a real sense application, you can use a voice command or type in a word or prompt or guide it exactly how you want to. That's not much of a challenge. So I figured that I could add those features and elements later. But the big project was, can I project this into an environment? Can I make the sky, the ground, the, the environment to, to be perceivable in a contingent, seamless way where the viewer can look all around and still have that depth, have that angle there? People do ask me, well, could I guide it more? And what I've done is I already have an automated set of things that I know that I'm going to want. So I have keyframe or keyword one buzzword two, buzzword three, and it changes accordingly. But for the user to have that input, that is left available also. It's a little bit hard to program code, have a headset on while you're also typing a prompt and testing it out. So I've done that without just to see if it can be done. Now that I'm showcasing that it can be done, the second part is going to be building it for the use case. Just recently in Miami, part of one of the teams that I work with did a voice to command to make a photo booth 
where people were walking into an art gallery that was taking their live feed of their picture, their camera, and it was augmenting them with that AI imagery in real time. So there's an example of that, that guidance. And we were able to put it together in like a week, kind of test it on the flight over there. And the rest of the crew were actually live commanding this once again on a simple PC that they brought with them through the airport and projected it onto different screens. And the feedback was, you know, was lovely. It was wonderful. So it's absolutely possible. And we're just testing that out in the field as we speak, kind of as independent developers and artists and creators. And I guess that's the cool thing about this, isn't it? That um, it allows for hobbyists, independent artists, it kind of equalizes the playing field, right? If you can both individually produce, you know, such a high level of, of content, immersive experiences, but then actually in aggregate, because you're all learning in the open, you're all kind of, in a way, there's a degree of composability. You, you can be as powerful, if not more so than, than a studio or, or anything else. So I know that stable diffusion as a particular technology is a big part of what you do. Could you just explain stable diffusion for us and, and, and what it technically does to allow you to do what you do? Sure. So Stability AI, a company that's behind assembling these large data sets and testing and also making products, recently released one of their data sets for use by people who want to make either a software or a UI that can tap into that. And in doing so, they can make imagery. Once that became open source, people started forking off of their own iterations of it. They started making different things that we've heard from a stable diffusion to the forum to disco diffusion. There's a lot of different outlets. And then there's UIs that people can put into their Discord server if they want to, or create a, a web UI where somebody's clicking a button and it's changing their image. And that's kind of just really bloomed, not only for the research part of it, because now basically everybody that you touch in the world is now technically a data scientist, but it also helps for use cases that you wouldn't have thought of yet just because you haven't handed it to the right person. So when Stability AI made the decision, hey, let's make stable diffusion a thing that people can reach, it just absolutely bloomed and took off. So with stable diffusion, that's another, I guess, data set alongside MidJourney or there's Dolly, there's OpenAI. They're kind of all going in the same direction. They're building billions upon trillions of pieces of information, organizing it, and then it is up to the user to reassemble that in a meaningful way. So you can have a woman with her hair on fire or a bunch of apples, but it's in ancient Greece and there's knights all sharing it. You know, it opens up the imagination for that point, but it's placing it into the hands of people that couldn't conventionally otherwise have access to it. And that's what Stability AI's big message is, getting AI into the hands of the many, not gatekeeping, not putting it behind a marketing paywall or keeping certain, you know, accessibilities out. They want to use that to be able to, to reach the world as it's going to anyways on its own. So that's kind of their, their informal mission statement, if you will. And so is that one of the more <clears throat> truly open um, data sets or algorithms? Because obviously there's a, lot of, there's a lot of criticism of things like OpenAI, the extent to which it's truly open. I know they have, I think it's called capped open. So investors are allowed to make a profit on it to a degree, but it is still permission. And presumably they can revoke permission. There's a central entity that can revoke that. And there's questions about this long-term 
commercial plan? How will it finance itself? Just the other day, Sam Altman was not complaining, but he was highlighting that the the compute costs are, you know, extraordinary and they don't yet have a plan about how they're going to finance all of this usage, which is great because it's training it. But so, so how does, well, firstly, how do you feel about um, that spectrum of different forms of APIs, data sets, algorithms, and, and do you do you think of stable diffusion as more open than others? And does that determine which technologies you interact with as a as a creator? So with any of these data sets, as they're being trained and assembled and put together, there's obvious compute power, manpower, a lot of hours put behind it. So there, there's a lot of value there. A lot of these companies that are either funding or researching these very data sets have a, a bit of a responsibility, if you will, that they can't just take fire and give it to man right off the bat without some control or ability to disperse it in a responsible ethic way. Now, of course, there's a lot of legalities like we were talking about international, and I can't really speak on each ones, but it now becomes a most like a most open or a more open approach one over another. Who's to say who's right or wrong in that? A lot of big tech companies are going to need to think about the marketing and distribution cost of a lot of what they're developing versus their competitors. That's why you won't see a lot of what I do on Twitter or other social media, because they're not allowed to really share their development part, but they're definitely developing it. And there is a lot that is going on. And some of the people that I've talked to have made large leaps and strides in the right direction. But of course, they're behind the way to properly deliver it to the public, to responsibly and ethically keep that and maintain that. So for every one piece of open software you hand out, you can expect 10 troubleshooting tickets to come back at you from the users that need that support. So you also have to think about those kind of costs. In terms of the computational power or the expense of it, a lot of companies, especially Stability AI, are looking to reduce the footprint. They're looking to make it not so inaccessible to everybody, or you have to have a rare piece of expensive hardware before you can actually really tap into it. And in doing so, not only for the consumer part of it, also for themselves, they don't need to generate incredible amount of compute to produce the images that that are satisfying enough for use in production, as well as for people's hobbies and and art and use cases. So there's a lot of moving parts between the legal, the licensing, the the responsibility and ethics of just letting it out into the public. I, for myself, have started to learn that as well, that I have a certain key, if you will, and people are, they want to know right away. They want to take it for their Cells, they want to use it, they want to explore it, beta test it, anything they can do to, to get their hands on it. They'll beg me, they'll flatter me, everything that they can, because they, they believe in that open source approach. But it's also my responsibility to expect that I have to deliver as well as support those who would believe in my project. So if I hand something that I'm doing over to the next person, it's going to come with many, many questions. It's not a polished product, and I'm not sure that all the public would understand that. Now, when you're talking about stability AI, we're not talking tens of thousands, we're talking millions and even more and more growth. So they have a, a moral duty to actually take care of the public. So therefore, there's a certain bit of centralization to their open source approach, 
but their goal and mission is still to get it out into the people's hands while they're also incurring all the liability themselves. And that's still, there's a lot to say about that. And they're still working on it and, you know, evolving. And that's why when they public, publicly release something, there's not only like, hey, here, use our tool. There's a lot of literature that goes with it, a lot of license agreement. And there's a lot of people behind the scenes that are working to make sure that that's the right thing to do for all of humankind that will use AI. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You look at chat GPT, I think it had 1 million users in the first week of this release with next to no marketing, right? The kind of product spoke for itself, very basic website. I'm actually not sure about the level of documentation, but you know, in terms of a means of distribution and marketing, it's almost, almost zero, right? Unusually so. But I think it's interesting, you know, you, you kind of raise this point around, I don't think you used the word explicitly. I think you said ethics and responsibility, but I know, for example, OpenAI referred to safety. And so their reason or rationale for gating and permissioning is that they they want to make sure it doesn't get into the wrong hands or it's not applied in the wrong way. How do you feel about that generally or, or like philosophically? Do you think that it is it is better to have an entity, whether it's a nonprofit, cat profit, or or for profit, gate access to something whilst it's whilst we're still understanding its implications, or do you think it's better to make something permissionless and kind of access equal? And I know it's maybe not that binary, but I don't know how you think about it. You're, you're absolutely right. It's not very you know a black and white. There is a lot of gray area that we not only manage within ourselves with where we fall on our own moral compass, but in terms of safety concerns or getting it into the wrong hands, every community will have its bad actors. Thing has the potential to equally be used improperly. And of course, there's a lot of warning labels. Even on your hairdryer, it says, don't use while sleeping. That's not for you. That's actually for them to you know protect themselves. Another moral duty, so to speak. Not a problem um, I've got, to be honest with you. So, so you, you'll have to just imagine the analogy yeah. there. Yeah. So with that being said, this type of tool that doesn't have, because it's blooming so quickly, it doesn't have the time to be tested over the decades or to go through proper research to see all potential angles of this, especially since its nature is kind of a sandbox just to color outside the lines and go wild. The last thing that we would want to have happen is the ability for the imagery to produce war scenes and weaponry, which is fine, maybe a use case for film, okay. And then there's other publications that might have children in a playground. The AI can combine those two and then inadvertently could have a child holding a weapon. And that's something that you don't want to have happen to your clients or other companies out there. So then where does the liability fall? the fact that you've produced a tool that can be used for that, or perhaps they inadvertently used something the right way and it produced a bad result. And then you also have those that are going to try to enforce that bad result to then counteract and say, see here, this is what's going on. This is all bad news. And then you have the, the naysayers and the anti movement towards it all. So a lot of those things are being considered by those big companies. And it's not only 
my personal view. It's also the view of like many, many people that are working to find that balance. Like we have a potential tool that can do a whole bunch of, you know, great in the world also as well as danger or depictions of things that should not be in the world that haven't been in the world and are not socially acceptable whatsoever. I I really feel, although I wasn't alive during World War II, there was a lot of, hey, nuclear science can be used for a lot of great things. It can also bring destruction. Where does the responsibility lie? And that's still a topic that has lasted to this decade as we speak. I assume that the same implication of AI is going to be spoken of for decades and decades. This is now like commonplace in the future, but there's always going to be that controversy and who holds the keys of responsibility in that case. Yeah. So maybe let's get back to applications. And so as we stand, the, the kind of, I guess, would, would you refer were to, as, you refer to it as a data set, but not an algorithm, a, a specific data set, right? That then produces certain output. Is, what, what kind of applications could you imagine that that be brought to both in a creative context, but then also, you know, more generally other industries it could touch? So in terms of data sets, basically, when a company is making the data set, they're making a very, very large one trained unambiguously on many, many different images from non-biased reaches of all of the internet and basically a mirror of human history, everything we've gathered and produced. It doesn't discriminate between this or that, or that apples can be green or red. It doesn't really mind. It just starts training and training. Now, you also have the ability as a user now to start training your own data set based on the back of one of those that already exist to fine tune it. For instance, it knows what a dog is, but it might not know what your dog, your specific pet is. So if you were to try to produce images that is your pet, your puppy at home, you would need to train that data set a little bit further. So that is starting to become more commonplace with use cases where a production company is like, yeah, 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 I can pull images from anywhere, from stock photos to et cetera, et cetera. But what can I do to make it mine? And that's where that fine tuning of that data set that was trained unambiguously is now a little bit more keen on a more directed approach. Um, therefore, companies and entities can make it unique to them. They can then rebind and re- repackage that data set and then distribute it again. For instance, something that was trained on all model cars from 1950 to present, it will have a data set that is heavily focused on all the car parts, the details down to the, to the steering wheel, to the lug nuts on the tires can all be described for perhaps automotive purposes, whereas the general data set, it would just make a general car for you as an image. The specific automotive company might include AI to further train their data set for concept cars, for production value, for different you know works in that direction. I could go on about use cases just based on the list of companies that have reached out to me looking for what they want to do. One of the most interesting ones that came across my mind that I wouldn't have thought of is crime scene reconstruction as per used by the the victim. What ends up happening in, in today's court of law, you have a victim that describes what they saw in an accident or there was a car here, et cetera. They approached me for my work for an immersive 3D, 3D environment where the victim could, t- could work with a detective who's trained in this to right. say, hey, there was the red car was on this side, The blue car hit it, but the lamppost wasn't there. There was actually two people across the street. And as they're dictating this story and this accountability, they're also building a picture with it that will be used as evidence in court of law. 
So your honor, this is what the victim says. This is their testimony, not just a piece of paperwork, but an actual environment build as reconstruction and recollection of the memory of what the victim saw from their perspective, perhaps as opposed to the other victim that saw the accident unfold in a completely different way. Maybe you could combine those two things as well. So you could have a combined memory from several perspectives that somehow merges, right? So you get a Absolutely. And that's the direction that they want to move in. So I wouldn't have thought that when I was playing around with some of the technology and imagery and stuff that there would be companies like that approaching me looking for obscure use cases like that. Some of the most common ones are therapeutic and they feel that in the future, a nurse practitioner might actually be trained in VR experiences to deliver that to their patients as part of a diagnosis, as a medicine literally putting them in a calm state or into an environment that is based on images and pictures that they're very familiar with as a curative regimen. There's obviously the I mean, gaming. On that one, I think it's super fascinating because I've, I've always, so I've got a young daughter who I occasionally let into the Oculus because I know it's not, not great for their eye development and various things. She's nine and a bit. And when I, but when I let her go into it, you know, she's, she's kind of, experiencing different realities, being able to literally switch between realities, but then also come out of that reality and and go back into it. And if you think about the impact of ACID and the counterculture movement back in the 60s and 70s, where for the first time people were going in and out of induced states, where they would, when they come out of that, they question reality, they question power structures, they question sexuality, they question like, what, what God? And I think of a generation now that's got digital acid on tap, like what's that going to do to how they look and understand reality? It's slightly esoteric, but I, I don't know if, you know, you, you, you kind of think of it in the same way. So being part of what I do with the imagery, the projection, the generative visual arts, I've been doing it for a while, long before AI, and it also parallels the community of people that go to raves. They want to see visuals from the DJs, et cetera. While we were in the pandemic, a lot of those concerts closed down. The venues weren't available to to view. So a lot of things became virtual productions where somebody was watching a screen of visuals and other things that are going on that would parallel that Woodstock experience, if you will. And now that AR and VR is starting to come out of that, it's a, it's, it's almost the birthplace of it. The gaming scene and the visual art scene has now given us the hardware and the visual audience to actually combine the two. So they're already waiting for that digital asset, if you will. It's another thing for them to consume. And there has been a large demand for it. Obviously, you know, a little bit safer, legal, et cetera, et cetera, and more accessible to people. But yeah, they're able to consume that wild content that they might want to. And perhaps they could see or experience things that you couldn't really do just by putting it up on a screen or something that you'd be limited to. Like you were saying, these people feel that they have an ideology where they met God or they're questioning the sexual relation between all of humankind and how do I get here and this and that. Those images can be depicted specifically for what it means to them. There might be something that means something completely different to another viewer. And that experience can be custom tailored just for them as well. Do you think that's the end game? Like in your mind, I mean, we still live in a world of mass media, right? We all watch the same Netflix series. We all watch the blockbuster movie. We all play the same AAA game. 
yes, there's a degree of free roam, free will in it, but it's it's generally a mass-produced piece of content. Do you think this takes us for the first time ever into a world of highly personalized content? So it's it's a it's a movie that could be produced by a studio, but it could be experienced in a highly personalized way at the edge based on how you interact with it. Is that the is that the end game? So in film, they're trying to do cutting edge stuff. Like I can say that it's already been in the game development. If you play Minecraft, that's procedurally generated. So it's a custom seed that is driving your game and no one else's game will be the same unless they're there with you. So that that experience is there in the gaming world. However, in film and industry, that's something that's you know produced in post. It's done, it's polished, it's packaged, and it's sent to the audience and that's it. So you have to be really good at CGI production and direction to produce something that is going to be solid and ends up on a DVD in a dollar bin at your local store. However, what you're speaking of is to create a product, a type of film or movie that based on its viewer will change its depth and imagery to what would evoke those certain emotions or that imagery for them. For like instance, your dog, for example, right? Your dog's now the, the dog that gets run over in the scene or like whatever. Right. It would have more of a connection to you if it spoke to those very things that evoke that emotion. For instance, if you have a fear of birds, okay, well, I might have a fear of snakes. It would implant those things into the film in such a way that it would evoke fear in it, but it wouldn't be the same film that you and I watched. And then those people, after having watched said film, could compare their notes and perspectives and say, oh, yeah, it was really crazy when I went in. How was it for you when you went in to watch the movie, et cetera? So, yeah, that that is going to be definitely an interesting end game, but it doesn't stop there. And there's going to be more and more of those custom tailored experiences, not only for film industry, but also for game development. I've had people approach me saying they want to make an escape room or a puzzle room that is geared towards the skill level of the user, which is independent from everybody else. And you could say, hey, I really want to be in a 1920s Victorian escape room that has locks, et cetera, and puzzle pieces that I need to figure out. And once that is completed, you would never have to experience that puzzle again. It could be generated completely new for each time, not only you use it, but maybe your friend joins you in a different experience set perhaps in the future. And so th there's that aspect as well. So the end game, as much as it's unknown, is almost infinite. Yeah, and it, it kind of feels inevitable, right? You know, Dan, what we're talking about now feels inevitable if you fully grasp what's happening and also not that far off, right? It sounds crazy to talk about what we're talking about. It feels like it, it would be decades away. And yet coming back to that point around how exponential everything is, how convergent everything is, and the more open source things are, I guess the, the crazier it gets. So maybe just on that to kind of close off, I work in the web free world, but at the intersection of where blockchain technology and tokenization converges with all this stuff. I've got a hundred people and this is all we do. And I'm permanently feeling overwhelmed. I know as an organization, it's overwhelming to just try to keep up. As a creative, how do you not burn out in this? Because on the one hand, it's exhilarating, right? You can do all these all these crazy things, all these possibilities. But as you said, like this week's news, this week's 
world leading research paper is just like you know I don't know what the analogy would be, but you know like it's 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 just in the bin next week. How, how do you keep up with that? How do you not how do you not get overwhelmed or burnt out? So we have to remember that in most aspects of our lives, as we look adjacently at technology, everything is linear. Things escalate by a line. We can kind of watch its progress. And we as humankind have kind of grown accustomed to that. This AI and the birth of what's going on is a very steep curve that exponentially just keeps skyrocketing. We can't really use that as an analogy for anything else in our lives to parallel it. So how do you keep from burning out? You have to keep on. And what I remind myself of is if I don't invent fire, somebody else will, and it will become commonplace. I like to be you know, part of watching all of it grow, not only from the inside, but also independently. But yes, we do have to be very careful not to burn ourselves out and to adapt to something that is growing faster than our ability to control it. I suggest and I usually advise to a lot of companies out there to not ditch their entire production department, not to get rid of everything that they've ever known, but to actually make it a hybrid of what they already have. Use it to augment what you already have in place. If you have great CGI and modeling skills, have AI guide that so it also develops what we are used to as humankind, the linear development but it can also help along those things get to the next point to, to overcome hurdles, to get to the next stage, or to make it not so full of fear, but to actually have some type of techno joy and to be able to embrace it. Those who are just jumping off the deep end and just going, yeah, AI all the way are, are going to get lost because they have no laurels to bank off of. So it's going to be quite an interesting marriage moving forward. Techno joy. I think that's a good way to end. And Scotty, I mean, I knew it'd be fascinating talking to you. I didn't quite know how, but I knew we wouldn't run out of things to say. How did people, I mean, you gave us a, a quick hint with the background, but I know that's incredibly limited as to, to what you're doing. How can people find you, see what you're doing, get in touch? So they can absolutely go onto my Twitter there's a lot of my sample work and sharing as well as other links embedded there that they can always feel free to contact me. I'm not behind a company right now. So I feel free to reach out to me on one-on-one -on -one and I try to get a hold of everybody I can because I enjoy the community. So yeah, Twitter is probably the best outlet to, uh, to see well, more of your what handle I do. And I think you've got a website as well, right? What's your Twitter handle? What's your website? URL? So the Twitter handle is ScottyFoxTTV. And scottyfox.com is a website that I'm putting together as my portfolio right now. Cool. Awesome. Well, Scotty, it was really great to connect. Uh, I'll continue stalking you on Twitter, but at least I, I, I know you now have had an excuse to chat and really excited to see, see where you, you, you take these technologies. Thanks for coming on. All right. Thank you for your time. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.